Hi, my name is Jackie Goddard and this is Power to Speak, the podcast, where I talk to a mix of creatives, thought leaders, authors, in fact, anyone with an interesting and inspiring story to tell. How did they get here? What have they learnt and how can their journey help us mere mortals? In this episode, I talk to public philosopher, keynote speaker and prolific author, Tom Morris. Enjoy. Hello, Tom Morris. It is fabulous to have you here on my podcast, The Power to Speak, the podcast. And I have to say, I'm a huge fan of yours. So so thank you so much for being here with me today. Tom, you are an author. Mainly you're a philosopher. You are America's philosopher. <laughs> for about, yeah, for many years now. I, I escaped the university. I managed to climb over the walls and I've been roaming in public for a long time now. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I discussed with you what, how I should introduce you. You said maybe introduce you as a very strange person, but I think, I think I'd like to hand that over to you and, and tell us how you introduce yourself. Well, uh, yeah, very interesting. I'm a, I'm a kind of a unique guy. I'm like a unicorn. I'm a public philosopher. Now, who, who ever heard of that? Well, in, in America, our last public philosopher, not attached to a university, was Ralph Waldo Emerson about 150 years ago. So, you know, nobody in my family had ever been to college. I got a scholarship to go to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And because of the scholarship I was on, I got into Yale for graduate school, did two PhDs at Yale, went to Notre Dame to teach, University of Notre Dame, in uh, one of the best departments in the, in the country. I was a full professor. I had a job for life, but I felt a sense of calling to bring philosophy to where people live. Uh, not everybody can come to a big university campus um, to learn more deeply about life. So I felt a, a sense of mission to, to go where people are. And so I resigned my position 26 years ago. And people said, what are, you, what are you doing? You have a guaranteed job for life. You're giving up 20 years of guaranteed income, at least. You know, do you, How do you know businesses are going to be interested in you six months from now? And I said, you know what? I think the only real security in life is living your proper adventure. I think the next stage in my adventure is going public. And so I've been doing it ever since, Jackie. That's a, and believe it or not, that's my short introduction. Wow, wow. <laughs> but I mean, you, and you've written over 30 books as well, which is, you know, I find incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's I got started young. I wrote my first book when I was 22 years old. Nobody told me, well, you're too young to do that. And it was rejected by 36 publishing companies. But number 37 said, yeah, we're going to do it. So I became a published author and started getting checks in the mail. <laughs> yeah. what, what was that called? What was the first book? It was called Francis Schaeffer's Apologetics, a critique. It was a philosophy of religion book. There was a guy who had written several books that had sold 10 million copies. He was in Switzerland. He was kind of a theologian, philosopher, people from all over the world, the hippies. This is back in the 60s and early 70s. The hippies would trek to uh, Waymo, Switzerland to spend a week or a month with this guy. His books were so popular, but nobody had written about his books. I got fascinated. I, and that's the way I am, Jackie. I get, I get curious about something. I get fascinated. I get almost obsessed, but not quite. And uh, before you know it, I've got a book written about it. Brilliant, brilliant. And I, I mean, I've literally just read Plato's Lemonade Stand. Ah, we'll, the... we'll get on, late, on to later because there are, yeah. there, you know, there are so many questions. Well, let's start with philosophy. Let's start with how did, how did it start with you then? I am, I am not a philosopher, but I feel I have a philosophical bent. Yeah. You know, there's, there's something in me that, that, uh, that is drawn to that kind of wisdom, I think. So yeah. When people ask you, I mean, you have must have frequently asked questions. What are the most frequently asked questions when people are talking to you about philosophy that don't have necessarily a background in philosophy? Yeah, uh, people just want to know, first of all, what it is. I mean, that's a question my mother kept asking me when I started studying at, at university. What is this? You know, how can you get a job doing this? Um, you know, it, 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 people often make the point, the word, the English word philosophy comes from uh, two ancient root words, philo, love of, sophia, wisdom. Philosophy is just the love of wisdom. And I like to say that an object of love, when you don't have it, you pursue it. And when you do have it, you embrace it. So philosophy is just the pursuit and embracing of wisdom. Now, now what is wisdom? 
uh, I used to say wisdom is just insight for living. And then I learned to say wisdom is embodied insight for living. And then one day, a young man from Madrid, Spain, visited me here in North Carolina in the U.S., and he went to have breakfast with me. And so we sat down to breakfast, and people from Europe, I love the, the philosophical sensibility, Jackie, because he didn't say to me, are the pancakes good here, or how are the eggs? He said, what is wisdom? That was his opening conversational <laughs> gambit. And I, and I said, wisdom is, is embodied insight for living. And then I suddenly had an insight I'd never quite had. And I said to him, wisdom is guidance and guardrails. And as a Spanish speaker, he said, what are, what is guardrails? I said, you know, you're up in the mountains driving along a twisty mountain road and there's a metal railing beside the road to keep your car from going off the side. Wisdom is two things. It's guidance to help us see where we need to go in our lives. And it's the guardrails to keep us from going over the edge as we try to get there. And he said, oh, I've never thought of that before. And I said, neither have I, but I think that's what philosophy is all about. And I tell you that story, Jackie, because in a sense, we're all philosophers. And even though I'm a philosopher professionally, I'm always learning more deeply what philosophy is. In fact, sometimes philosophy is just about perspective, putting things in the right perspective. And that's something I was never told in a philosophy classroom. I've just had to come to understand. Yeah. So do you think you need to be old to be a philosopher? I mean, not that you're old, of course, but what I'm saying is, <laughs> is it something, is it something, or I'm, is it something that comes with age? You know, it, it can but I know plenty of foolish old people as well. Um, I like people who start young. There's a, there's a young man in Bucharest, Romania, who emailed me this summer, and he said, I've just read your book, Philosophy for Dummies. And he said, I always thought philosophy would be too difficult, but I understood every sentence on every page of your book. And it got me so excited about philosophy. What should I read next? Now, he told me he was 15 years old. Yeah. And so I said, okay, so I'm figuring I want to lead him into something that'll be fun. So I said, I did a little short novel called The Oasis Within. Go read that and let me know what you think. Oh, the two days later, I love this novel. This, this has changed the way I feel about everything. This is wonderful. What's, what's next? I said, actually, that's the prologue to a seven-volume series of novels. You can read those if you want to. <laughs> and he starts emailing me every day about what he's just read and how it's changed his way of thinking. And the book features a bunch of kids who are about his age. And he said, I would have been too, too afraid to read Aristotle. But these are kids my age talking about Aristotle and showing me how you live courage, how you live wisdom, how you live uh, a sound judgment and humility. He says, it's eye-opening. So I tell you that story, Jackie, because it's great when you start at the age of 40 or 50 or 60, it's great at any age. But to see a 15-year-old in Romania, somebody I would never have met, come across one of my books and it sparks the philosophical life, what a wonderful thing. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, then how, how do you teach philosophy then? Is it, it, is it something that obviously comes from Socrates? And I, I was absolutely gobsmacked actually reading the book because I know, I know nothing about philosophy, but I didn't realize that, that Plato was Socrates' student. Yeah, and yeah. And so, you know, all those years, yeah. thousands of years ago, however long ago it was. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. You know, the, 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 those two guys were, were, t were together and t learning from each other or, you know, certainly one learning from yeah. the other. Yeah, learning from each other. And, you know, what yeah. people uh, forget is that Socrates had no degree in philosophy. He just had endless curiosity and was brave enough to ask all the right questions. And, and, and so he ends, he ends up having two famous students. Most people know about Plato. Few people know about Xenophon, spelled with an X. Xenophon became a very prominent military man, and he's written about the practical side of Socrates' teaching. Plato wrote more about the theoretical side, Xenophon more about the practical side, and I just finished writing a book, which hopefully will, will appear in print within a year, um, based on Mary Shelley's novels, uh, Frankenstein and a novel called The Last Man. But I use her ideas to frame world wisdom on how to avoid, well, 
what's Frankenstein about? It's about a very smart man who sets a clear goal and as a result of his own success, unleashes on the world a monster he can't yeah. control. Well, boy, what a metaphor that is for yeah. modern business, right? And for many people's lives. So I, I, one of the people I discuss at length is Xenophon, somebody I've never written about before and just recently discovered the wisdom of his work. So you're right, Socrates set forth into the world innumerable philosophical thinkers from whose words we can benefit. Yeah. And so is it, so is it all then about uh, learning from the people that came before? Often it is. Um, they spark us to have our own thoughts. That's when it's best, not just when we memorize what they said and call that doing philosophy. In fact, I learned from British philosophers to talk about doing philosophy. It's not just something we learn, it's something we do. And the great philosophers of the past are at their best when they help us do it better. Yeah. And uh, curiosity, you mentioned, asking questions. I mean, that, yeah. that must be a, a routine to your own philosophy. Oh, really. all, all the time, all the time. And you mentioned I I've, have I've 30 uh, books in print. Um, I'm working on five right now. And I just can't stop because I'm curious about so many things. I, I, I read an article the other day. It was a transcript of an interview the New York Times did with a Berkeley University professor of philosophy and psychology, Alison Gopnik. And Alison was talking about how we need to learn from the way children's brains work. And she said, you know, children, the child's mind is mostly about exploring the world the adult mind becomes mostly about exploiting the world. We stop exploring. And, and the child's mind is, is mostly about enjoying as they explore. And our mind too often is about enduring. Uh, so if we can return to that childlike mindset, uh, Aristotle said philosophy begins in wonder. And boy, that characterizes children. I remember going out to play tennis with my son one day, and I was eager to play tennis because he was getting really good. He was very young. And all he, he got out on the court, and he saw a, a large insect on the court, something he had never seen before. And he bends over to look at the insect. And I'm standing at the service line, you know, ready to serve. And it's like, hey, Matt, you know, hey, hey, over there. And he's He's just fascinated by this bug. Well, I end up walking around the net to see what's so interesting. But still, I wanted to get back to let's do the serve, you know. Yeah, yeah. But he had that wonderment. Uh, and I think that really has, has driven philosophy in, in its entire history and can ignite and spark it in people's lives now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm all about, I've said this in, in, I think, every podcast I've done because it's around creativity, I think. But it, that playfulness, that, that childlike wonder and curiosity is what I do in my adult classes I, I play yeah. That's great. <laughs> we, we play make-believe you know we improvise yeah. we make stuff up yeah. and oh, you know yeah. I've had students come to me at the end and say that that was like a therapy session because it just frees yeah. frees up so many things and we lose that as adults I, I think that's absolutely right you know we, we forget to explore and we start exploiting yeah, yeah. that's a good way of, of putting it. But but just while we're on that childhood topic, yeah. um, I don't want to spoil the end of Plato's Lemonade because <laughs> there's something right at the end there that kind of explains the whole book. I think. Oh, you like that surprise at the end? I do. I did like it. I, I liked it a lot. And it is that uh, you know is it so without obviously spoiling unless and I would leave that to you you can if you want to um <laughs> but you know was it that point that you you suddenly you know life fell into some yeah. sort of uh, structure for you then yeah it, it, it you're you're right I mean it's funny because I didn't realize how the book was going to end until the book was ready to end and in fact the insight on the last page came to me as I was writing the last page. I'm not one of these people who always has the entire book in, in, in mind. In fact, when I did my novels, I never knew 
what the next sentence was going to be. But people would say, oh, you're clearly, you've been planting these ideas and these things that will come to fruition later. No, no, I just write the sentences. In fact, the the, the novels came to me, we, we could talk about that later, but they came to me like a movie playing in my head. And I, I was just like anybody watching a movie. I was just trying to type it out as fast as I could, the things I was seeing. And the same thing happens some, with some of my nonfiction books, like Plato's Lemonade Stand. I had a structure in mind for the book, the main ideas of the book. I'd given a lot of speeches uh, to various groups on how to deal with difficult change, how to launch change. Um, and so I kind of knew where I was going in the book. But you have to be open for surprises, right? Because that's really the essence of creativity. I mean, it's it's funny, the our word creativity comes from a Latin root, a creare, a verb to make, right? And you can make something, whether it's novel or innovative or or just like something else you've seen somebody else make. But my creativity at its best, it's a real exploring, it's a surprising journey. I'm constantly surprised myself. Um, and if I, can, if I can put that into my books and surprise the reader too, then it's just a real joy. Yeah. Can I, can, I mean, we will get onto the novels later because um, I'm doing a creative writing degree at the moment. Oh. So I'm, I'm all about the creative writing. But I just oh, wow. want to ask, do you, do you write longhand or do you type for, for the first, you know, just yeah. to get it out of your head? Well, my first 12 books I wrote longhand on gray legal pads with ballpoint or fountain pen. And I was very slow to change over to the computer because I thought I was going to lose uh, one of my main tools of creativity, I thought, was the cursive movement of the hand quietly across yeah. a piece of paper. And so, I mean, I really, I, I, it was with trepidation that I moved over uh, to writing on a keyboard. Uh, my first uh, keyboard book was the 1997 book, uh, If Aristotle Ran General Motors. And that's the first time I gave it a try. And I thought, oh, I can, I can do this. Oh, this is not as different as I thought. So now I make all my notes in cursive on paper with a pen. Uh, and then I run to the keyboard and, and, and type it up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think there is something, I think that's absolutely for, for me as well. There's something in that, that cursive, just that movement yeah. across the page and that connection with the brain, I think just as you're, as you're writing and it's, it's free flow, isn't it? It's kind of coming out in for the novels, I assume, probably it, it, for the, for the nonfiction. It really is Jackie. When you think of the history of human making, um, it's hardly ever been just with the fingers uh, human making has involved the arms, right? It has involved more of the body. And when you're doing your cursive writing, you're involving your body. And I tend to think that there are deep neurological links with these kinds of things, right? Deep, deep, deep in our brains. And so, so when I want to do some free form creative thinking, I pull out the, what one psychologist told me is the greatest therapeutic tool ever developed a blank sheet of paper, <laughs> I agree. I agree. It's it's amazing, isn't it? What you you know what what you can get down there and what comes out. Yeah. And, and I you know I I start doing that and I look up and and three four hours have have disappeared. Have yeah. Disappeared. Yeah. Well, while we're on that topic, then let's let's go to the novels. Let's go to that sort of creative side of you because I was I was looking at some of the reviews for uh, the. So tell us about the series. You 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 said oh. it started out with a prologue. Is, yeah. it the, is it the uh, Walid and the Mysteries of Pi? Is that correct? Yeah, Walid and, and the Mysteries of Pi. Yeah, it, 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 here, here, here's the first book, okay? The Oasis Within. Let me tell you the story of this, Jack. Fascinating. I was working on Plato's Lemonade Stand, a book that, by the way, took me 15 years to, to write. I wrote it 25 times. It had six different titles. Wow. It was turned down by 44 publishers in previous... Uh, versions. Nobody ever said a bad word about it. They just said things like, well, we're not sure this would be a big enough book for us. They couldn't figure out what I, what I was doing. And, and the versions all got, got better and better and better. But it was in the midst of doing all that. February 2011, I was um, at breakfast and I finished breakfast. And I push away from the table to go upstairs where I am now and work on Plato's Lemonade Stand. And um, all of a sudden, 
I start having the most vivid daydream of my entire life. I mean, I see an old man and a young boy. I see them sitting in the sand. Maybe it's the desert under a palm tree. And I can actually, in my mind's eye and ear, I can actually hear a conversation. This is Now, I'm a daydreamer, but this is a daydream on steroids. This is the, the most vivid daydream of my life. I ran upstairs where I am now. I started typing. The movie paused for me to get up here. I typed nonstop 10 pages. I didn't know what this was. I put the 10 pages on the Huffington Post, and within minutes, I'm getting emails from all over the world. What is this? This is great. Is this from a book? I write people back. I don't know what this is. It just came to me this morning. It's the opening of the Oasis Within. To make a long story short, for five years, the movie played in my head almost every day and generated eight novels of over a million words. The Oasis Within is a short conversational prologue to what becomes an action and adventure tale set in Egypt in 1934 and 1935. More philosophy than I've ever learned in my life. The old man, there's a Gandalf, a Dumbledore, his name is Ali. He ends up being my best teacher, better than the Yale teachers, better than the North Carolina teachers. Um, Everything I needed to learn about philosophy, he teaches me from the desert in Egypt and Cairo in 1934. At the end of four hours of writing or six hours of writing, where, like you said, it felt like 20 minutes, yeah. I would Google things I had seen in my movie, a dead poisonous snake in the desert, a certain car in Cairo. Everything turned out to be true of Egypt in 1934 and 1935, except the characters. It's a fictional story. Um and I'm thinking, how did this happen? It started when I was, I think, 58 years old. And it only could happen at a point in my life where I learned how to get out of my own way. And as the old man says one time in the story, he says, we have to get beyond the chatter of the conscious mind. We have to get beneath the clutter of the conscious mind, because that's where the real treasure is to be found. And I feel like in February of 2011, I began to discover the real treasure yeah. uh, for the first time in my life. Yeah, that's an amazing story. Amazing. Um, yeah. Do you think that's, it was that that information was there buried in your, in your mind somewhere that it was just coming, just coming out? Well, it can't have been completely because I've never, I had never studied Egypt. I didn't, if you had asked me, tell me about Egypt, I would have said pyramids, sphinx, sand, that's it. You know, tell me about 1934 between the world wars. I mean, I had never studied history. I had never studied that part of the world. Uh, here's the detail of what may be available to us in our unconscious minds, Jackie. Um, so the main character, I didn't know his name. He's a 13 year old boy. I didn't know his name till chapter three. He calls his uncle, Uncle Ali. Ali, Ali says to him, well, my boy, well, my son, uh, never uses his name in the first two chapters. So chapter three, there's a sandstorm and somebody runs up there. It's a caravan crossing the desert. Somebody runs up, Ali, are you and Walid all right? That must be the boy's name. That's how I got the boy's name. I was at the Washington Speakers Bureau telling the story to their staff of 90 people at the time. Somebody says, do you know what the word Walid means in Arabic? I said, no idea. She said, my husband's an Arab, so I, I know it means boy. It's like the English word guy. It's a very common first name. If you're writing a coming-of-age story about a boy in Egypt, you couldn't have picked a better first name. I said, I didn't know that. So anyway, I give the book when it comes out. I give it to a lady from Morocco that works nearby where I live. And she looks through the book and she's, oh, oh, I see character Wali. Uh, no, uh, she, here's how she said, I see character Walid. Walid. Oh, very good name for character. I like that. Walid uh, means boy. I said, well, Hindala, I heard it in my movie as Walid. No, no, no. Walid, she said, you, pro you, you pronounce Walid. I come home and I tell my wife, I said, Hindala says I'm pronouncing the main character's name wrong. My wife said, well, she's from Morocco, Northern Africa, so she probably knows what she's talking about. I said, you know what, I'm going to go with what I heard in my movie. I'm going to call him Walid. So two months later, I'm giving a speech in Lincoln Financial Field, the big football stadium in Philadelphia. Uh, SUV, black SUV picks, picks me up afterwards to take me to the airport. My, uh, my driver has an interesting accent. I said, where are you from? He said, Egypt. And I said, really? 
I'm writing a bunch of novels set in Egypt in 1934. Oh, my father was born in Alexandria in 1932. I said, really? I said, my main character's name is Walid. And he looks in the rearview mirror and he said, that's my name. And I said, wait, how do you say it naturally? Because a lady from Morocco says it's Walid and I don't say it like that. He said, no, totally different Arabic in Morocco. We say Walid. I said, that's how I heard it in my movie. And so I called my wife, hello? <laughs> I was right all the time. So how did I know that? I don't know. I don't you know. know. I mean, that is, it is the subconscious, isn't it? It is that thing. Yeah. Like you were saying, once all the clutter's gone, you get to a certain stage in your life. And for me, that has been lockdown for me to have, to have all that, you know, the, that kind of hamster wheel of life just yeah. taken away. Yeah. Um, and I, it's with my drama class, my adult drama class, I managed to get back into a venue in, in August. And I said, right, we're going to start doing some research on past pandemics. So we yeah. looked into the Spanish flu, we looked into the plague, we looked into, you know, all these other stuff. And I found, um, what I didn't know about uh, Isaac Newton, who in oh, yeah. 1665, yep. uh, 1666, was sent back from Cambridge University to his home, was in lockdown for, for a year while the plague ravaged everywhere. Um, and he came up with calculus. And, you know, yeah. a, a lot of his theories were kind of developed in that time yeah. because he had that, that space to be creative. That's right. Um, and he called it his year of wonder. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say the same thing about this year. I've had more creative thoughts, more creative work uh, this year probably than uh, any five years uh, 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 put together. It, 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 it is an amazing thing, Jackie, when the distractions of our lives, like Ali said, said in, in my story, get beyond the chatter, get beyond the clutter, get beyond the distractions. It's amazing that there's this beautiful breeze blowing through the centuries. And people ask me, how'd you have all this stuff happen? I said, I don't know, maybe it's something like the Carl Jung and his idea of the collective unconscious. Maybe our conscious minds are like walled fortresses with a few doors and windows, but the unconscious is surrounded by a chain link fence. It's much more permeable for yeah. what's out there in the world. And it could be, you know, people say, what, well, did you have a former life in Egypt? I said, I, it's probably something less exotic than that, but maybe the Jungian unconscious may explain a lot of serendipities, synchronicities, uh, sort of uncanny experiences in our lives. And if we can open ourselves up to more of that, then the creativity just seems to blossom. Yeah, yeah, certainly it, for my, you know, this has been a year of wonder for me. I've completely rebranded, almost sort of transformed from what I was coming into it to what I am <laughs> going out of it. Yeah, you know, yeah. With, a, with a whole new outlook on, on life and my own creativity. You yeah. know, you get so wrapped up and I think we all do. And I, I know that lots of people haven't had the same experience right. of this last year as, as I have. Um, but yeah, for me, it's, it's, been, it's been amazing to, to learn so much. Yeah, yeah, you know, I've done so much learning, and I think that's where a lot of creativity comes from. It does. It does. Uh, uh, th that's been my experience altogether. It's when I'm exploring and learning. Um, for example, I read the the Iliad and the Odyssey last year. I read the Iliad twice and the Odyssey four times wow. in three different translations. I had read each once or twice prior in my life, but in one year, two times through the Iliad, four times through the Odyssey. And I, and I suddenly saw patterns and very important things that I had never seen before. Um, and it was when I was working, working hard, learning myself that all of a sudden, boom, new ideas started coming to me left and right. So, yeah, it, there is this connection. It's not just go lie in the hammock and be completely still for a week and you'll have all kinds of creative ideas. Yeah. It usually rides piggyback on top of a lot of hard work and learning yeah. and exploring. Absolutely. I asked my dad what was creative, what creativity was, and he said, it's just doing. Yeah, right. Like the Latin word to make, you know, to do, right? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And you know? but I think it was, it was Joseph that had, uh, Joseph Jaffe that had the best when I asked him on my, on my podcast, and I can, it was, he, he said, productive originality. Yeah, yeah. And I like uh, obviously, originality, doing things differently, and productive, pro productivity yeah. is uh, doing it to get a result. 
Yeah, absolutely right. You know, it's that it's that combination. I mean, it's it's interesting. I was in Helsinki, Finland once and I was running through the art gallery because given the group I was with, I, I, we had to go someplace. I didn't have long. I wanted to see. So I said to myself, when am I going to be in Helsinki, Finland again to see what's in the art gallery? So I'm running through the gallery. Oh, Van Gogh. Oh, Gauguin. Oh, uh, Cezanne. And I come across, I run around a corner and almost run into the famous statue that represents what I do, the thinker, uh, one of Rodin's thinkers. Yeah, yeah. And I suddenly realized this is a very muscular character, something that had never occurred to me before. Oh, Rodin is representing the thinker as a doer. That, so it's not like there are two kinds of people in the world, the thinkers and the doers. The ideal is the person who, who, who thinks by doing, who does while thinking. It's a wonderful thing. And that's that productive originality. You're producing, you're acting, you're doing, you're making. And as that's happening, you're accessing things you would not have been able to access before. Yeah. Tell me why you uh, left Notre Dame to do uh, what you do now and what made you go take philosophy into businesses? That's what, what kind of struck me is that, that where is where is that synergy between business and philosophy? Well, you know, there was no master plan. There was no business plan of mine. It was just that I was at Notre Dame. I, I was a full professor. I taught an eighth of the student body most years. I had big classes. I had I didn't have to grade papers. I had 12 teaching assistants, graduate students to do all the grading. I would just show up two days a week, uh, an hour in the morning, Monday, an hour in the afternoon, Monday afternoon, and do the same thing on Wednesday. And that was my work schedule. I mean, it was this idyllic job giving me tons of free time. Why would anybody quit that? You know, um, I was loving it. I was having a great time. But a chamber of commerce group, a little a group in South Bend of representing all the businesses in town. They said, look, we've asked the businesses, who are the young people in your business most likely to be future leaders in the community? And we want to do a year-long program uh, with these young people in their 20s and 30s. And we're going to do a day on ethics. And in the morning, we're going to the newspaper and the TV station to talk about journalistic ethics. In the afternoon, we want to talk about business ethics. Could you give us a talk on business ethics? We've heard your classes are the most popular at the university. And well, instead of saying, well, I don't, I've never studied ethics or business ethics, instead of saying, you're calling the wrong guy, you know, there's somebody else you ought to be talking to, I said, okay, let me look into it. I'll put together something for you. That's the secret of my life, Jackie, is saying okay to stuff I'm not qualified for <laughs> and then making myself qualified. And so I gave a talk. Everybody there said, oh, you got to come to my civic club. You got to come to my business. You got to come to my church and give the same talk. Okay. So I'm giving free talks all over South Bend, Indiana. And then an Oldsmobile dealer calls me, a, an automobile dealer. We have a regional meeting once a year in the Midwest. We have a motivational speaker every year. Set goals. Believe in yourself. You can do it. There's got to be something deeper than that, right? Did the philosophers ever talk about success? And rather than saying, well, I have no idea. That's not the kind of stuff I studied at Yale. I said, well, let me look into it. So, Jackie, I, because of that, I ended up discovering the forgotten side of philosophy the practical side of philosophy. You go into a philosophy classroom in a university, how do we know we exist, you know? Or today, our lecture is on epistemology, you know, the, the logic of knowledge and belief, you know, and, and how evidence relates to theories. And it's all this theoretical stuff. And it's like, there were philosophers in the ancient world who talked about success and happiness and anger and adversity and all these practical things. And, and in our desire to be like the sciences, we've left those topics behind. And, and we're engaged in complicated arguments using uh, modal logic and all sorts of things. I wanna, I wanna rediscover this practical side and really look into it. And that's what's been my career ever since. And it was businesses that asked me to do it. And it was businesses that after two years started offering to pay me to do it. And at a certain point, I was making more from these speeches for my family than I was from being a professor. And I said, and then soon it got to be the point that they would pay me for an hour, what Notre Dame would pay me for a year. Wow. And I thought, <laughs> okay, even if this is not a sustainable enterprise, if I just do it for a while, we're okay. And like I say, that was 26 years ago and still, still we're going with this enterprise. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. So is it that kind of teacher 
uh, speaker kind of there's something there is a there's a connection there isn't there that you, you know you were saying earlier that you you were you came to speaking quite naturally you came to presenting quite naturally yeah. Yeah. but that's what you do in front of a class isn't it yeah it, it is and oddly enough the one of the top uh, agents at the Washington Speakers Bureau where I was an exclusive speaker with all the famous politicians from you know it'd be Margaret Thatcher and me or it would be George Bush W Bush and me or or uh, Colin Powell and me I, I was the who's he amongst the who's who for many years uh, one of the top agents there said professors make the worst public speakers you're an exception I said why and he said professors think it's their job to provide as much information as possible during the hour you realize that's not the job. The job is to have the biggest positive impact in the hour. And information is subordinate to that. I said, wow, you know, yeah, that's kind of what I try to do. Impact first, you know. And it's funny because I played, you can see behind me on kind of both sides of me here, yeah. guitars, amplifiers. I played in bands before I was a philosopher. So I was accustomed to being in front of thousands of people. And to me, to be a professor and then to be a public speaker is trying to bring that energy that enjoyment, that experience to people for the sake of wisdom and ideas they can use. So it's always going to be fun. And I mean, I've, I've done over the years, I've had speeches in front of 3,000 and 5,000 and 10,000 people where they jump to their feet afterwards and they're not just clapping, they're stomping their feet, they're yelling, they're whistling. It's like being in a concert. Who thought that philosophy could have that effect when it's done the right way, absolutely, it can have, it can have amazing effects. So yeah, yeah it, it, everything in my past prepared me for this. As my father used to say to me, who was a high school graduate, 12th grade, 12 grades of school, never went to college. He said, life is supposed to be a series of, adventure, of adventures. The one you're on now is preparing you for the next one in ways you often can't imagine. Yeah. Likewise, being a, who knew that being a guitar, guitarist in bands would prepare me to be a public philosopher? You don't just connect those dots easily. <laughs> no, no, but it is, you know, I suppose it may be, maybe professors in everyday life don't have, you know, the opportunity to stand on a stage in front of thousands of people. They, they assume that standing in front of 20 or 30 yeah. students is, you know, a big enough audience that they, that they can cope with. But I absolutely agree. And it's what I do when I'm, when I'm trying to, you know, when I'm coaching people around presenting, it's, it's, it's really about how you say and, and enjoying, it, you know, being excited about what you're talking about. Whereas yeah. exactly as you said, so many, uh, whether it's business people or professors, teachers stand there and think I've got to deliver this information. And right. it's Absolutely. not important, you know, the data is what's important and it's not what's important. What's important is the audience, you know, the yeah, people right. that, you're, that, you know, that are hearing what it is that you're saying, that's what's important. Yeah, we're trying to inspire those people. We're trying to spark those people. We're trying to, to have a transformative impact in that short period of time we have together, an impact that will endure a, a banker emailed me once and said, because of you, I've got Beowulf on my nightstand that I read at night. That would never have happened apart from a talk of yours. So I'm not just referring to Plato and Aristotle and, 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 and Kierkegaard and people like that. I try to bring in world literature. I try to bring in anything, sometimes a moment with a line from Shakespeare or short soliloquy in the middle of a talk. It's just like everybody's mesmerized because they all of a sudden are seeing connections yeah. between things they didn't think were connected at all. Wait, yeah. you're quoting from the theater. I thought philosophers did something altogether different, you know? And so it's breaking down walls and it's, it's sparking people from all sorts of directions. That's yeah. what's fun. It's making those bridges as well, isn't it? Between, you know, the, I mean, the quotes that you've got in Plato's Lemonade Stand, I mean, I wrote down uh, a couple from, well, Oscar, Oscar Wilde. I mean, he's full of them anyway, isn't he? But, <laughs> he's a quote machine, you know. Machine. The secret of life is in art. And I think, you know, that's that for me, the secret of life is in art. And it's like you said, the art of adaptation, the art of, of change. It's, yeah. you know, we have to we have to be prepared as the, as the, the Boy Scouts over here, that's their motto. Yeah, yeah. Be, be prepared. That's right. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so why haven't you done a TED Talk yet? <laughs> because I'm the stealth philosopher. I stay off the radar screens. <laughs> no, it would be a wonderful thing to do. Um, uh, they probably know enough about me to know that it would be very tough for me to do 15 minutes. <laughs> <all any time. laughs> 
You know, and there was a there was a famous uh, uh, line in graduate school about German philosophers whose book whose top whenever they wrote on a topic it was three volumes, three thick volumes, and people would say, "Well, it takes them volume one just to clear their throats." You know, I mean, and that's the way philosophers are. There are a lot of preliminaries. You know? But uh, yeah, I would love to do something like that because you know the TED talks uh, started out with what people knew they needed some well-known psychologists, some well-known behavioral economists, some well-known people in fields of medicine, in aging. Uh, TED Talks early on, it was things that, you know, the low-hanging fruit, the the things that people, the organizers of the, uh, uh, knew that people needed. It's been a well-kept secret that people need philosophy. And in fact, the Washington Speakers Bureau, their marketing head once told me, you're the hardest speaker we've ever worked with to sell initially because people say philosophy, but you're the easiest speaker to resell yeah. we've ever worked with. Because like one company, uh, Merrill Lynch, I did a, a talk for their global leadership uh, and they had me do 43 more talks in a three-year period. And, you know, each time paying me my Notre Dame starting salary for each of these talks, it was like they just discovered something they didn't realize that philosophy is not just relevant, it's deeply powerfully relevant in, in ways that, you know, we typically don't even talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a Brené Brown. I don't know if you've ever seen her Ted talk. Yeah. yeah. I, just, I don't think she realized what it was that she had, the kind of wisdom philosophy, you know, within, within her talk, but she was saying that as well in that talk that they didn't know how to sell her, you know, they wanted to sort of, put sort of quotes around what she did and everything else. And it just, you know, she was, this isn't me. It's not what I do, but whatever I'll be, whoever yeah, you, well, you know, And she, <laughs> the, the brilliance of her sort of coming onto the scene was talking about things. Nobody was talking about like vulnerability. Absolutely. Nobody, yeah. nobody was talking about. And yet once she began to talk about that topic, people resonated with that and thought, yeah. Oh, I see. You know? So if you can bring people a surprising revelation that suddenly sheds light on so much else in their lives so you yeah. can have a very powerful effect yeah absolutely no i think she's she's amazing so how how did uh, how did disney happen for you how how did uh, <laughs> the whole kind of eeyore and uh, working with disney yeah, the Winnie the Pooh. Uh, Winnie the Pooh. It's yeah. funny because i was just in my office one day at Notre Dame and the telephone rang i picked it up and the lady says well i've got an unusual request she says oh I work for DDB Needham Advertising in Chicago, and one of our clients is Disney. Um, their home video uh, 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 company, uh, Buena Vista Pictures, and she said we're doing we're doing some commercials, and we want to portray the wisdom of the Winnie the Pooh stories. And we're, we're, we've searched the country for a philosopher to be the spokesman for Winnie the Pooh. We've searched the East Coast, we've searched the West Coast. We're looking for a philosophy professor with personality, and we cannot find one. She said, and I said, well, why are you calling me? I was at Notre Dame. And she said, well, I had a, a, a beach weekend with my, with my father, who was a Notre Dame graduate. And I told him about this futile search for a philosopher with personality. And she said, we're just going to give up on this campaign. He said, no, no, no. Promise me one thing. You'll call Notre Dame before you give up. Just one more place. She said, okay. So she called the administration at Notre Dame. I'm looking for somebody to represent Winnie the Pooh as a figure of wisdom. And I'd love a philosopher. And they said, boy, have we got the guy for you. Call Tom Morris. And so within days, I was in Los Angeles with my family. And we were filming commercials for Winnie the Pooh, national television commercials. And um, it was the most unusual and fascinating experience. And I said yes to it mostly but to give my kids a treat uh, yeah. because they loved Winnie the Pooh. And my wife and I had read to each other when we were dating Winnie the Pooh stories in college. And so it was just too perfect. And so I didn't know the amount of attention because they premiered these commercials on the Today Show, NBC Today Show in America, which was at its peak as the number one morning TV show. You know, it's like millions of people are seeing me in my reproduced Notre Dame office in Hollywood talking about Winnie the Pooh. And I'm juxtaposed with Pooh characters and all this. And it's like that got people's attention for my uh, speeches, my nascent speeches at that time, because rather than being, wait, he's a philosopher. It's like, he's the guy who pitches Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Let's <laughs> have him come in, you know? So it, it, it was like jet fuel to my beginning 
career as a public philosopher. It's so much fun. Yeah, I bet it was. Yeah. And, and do people still recognize you as that now? Yeah, I do get that still from people. And it's funny because they 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 were going to fly me to L.A. I said, how about my family? And they said, OK, we'll fly the family. And uh, I said, my kids will really love this. And they said, well, if you bring you, how old are your kids? And I told them the ages. And they said, OK, so first of all, we're going to put you up in, in Beverly Hills uh, at a really nice hotel. And then you'll make your commercials while you're staying there. And then we'll send you to the beach in Santa Monica. You can have a beach experience. And then we'll send you to Disneyland. And you'll have it's we, there's a secret pass where you never have to stand in line and we'll let your family have that for the day. And so it was like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> what have you done in previous life to, yeah, to, right. to have all of this? It's amazing. But you've yeah. used um, characters from books, haven't you? Four other books. Yeah. So, you know, the, you say now you, at the moment you're doing working with Mary Shelley and Frankenstein oh, and those characters, yeah. oh, uh, yeah. but Harry Potter you've used as well for was oh. it General Motors. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first book um, uh, in 1997, if Aristotle ran General Motors, oh. and then when po uh, the Potter books came out, I wasn't even going to read them because I thought they were just books for little kids. So a young philosopher called me up and maybe he, he emailed me first and he said, hey, I'm doing a book. Uh, called Harry Potter and Philosophy. And I would love you to re write an essay for the book. And if you agree, your essay will be the lead essay for the book. And I wrote him back and I said, well, look, I, my kids are grown or older now. They're not, I don't have little kids in the house. We, we haven't been reading these stories. And he, he wrote me back. He said, they're not just for kids, they're for everybody. And this went on for weeks. He would call me, he would write me. He got his favorite professor who was one of my graduate students to call me and write me. And I said, guys, I'll read the first Potter book. And if I like it, I'll write something. And if I don't, you guys will leave me alone about this, okay? Because we've tried. Okay, okay, that's fine. Yeah, read the first book. I ended up reading all the books that were out at that time, the first four or five, six times through cover to cover. <laughs> People didn't realize how much philosophy there was in these books. She was trained as a classics major, uh, J.K. Rowling, and, and she was using Aristotle. And she was using, so I ended up writing an article for the guy's book called The Courageous Harry Potter. Uh, Aristotle thought the most important virtue is courage, because without it, you won't use any of the others under pressure. Um, and so that's the main theme of the stories. The scared little kid stands up to the main threat of his day. How does he develop that courage? Well, so I couldn't stop writing after the article. I ended up writing a whole book called Harry. It was first of all called Harry Potter and the Meaning of Life. But the main business editor at Doubleday, uh, an agent I had sent it to him because she knew he loved Harry Potter. He'd been reading the stories to his grandchildren. And he calls me up. I'm in the car with my family on vacation or something. I have to pull over to the side of the road. He said, this is the greatest book on leadership I've ever seen. We've always loved your book if Aristotle ran General Motors. Can you retitle it? Something like that and put in some business stuff, and we'll do it. And it was double-day currency policy. So I said, okay. <laughs> so it became if Harry Potter ran General Electric. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you use it as well. The, 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 the five, um, oh, I don't know what to call them, the five tips or whatever that yeah. started with courage. Yeah. came from Harry Potter. And you've kind of you've used that against, you know, other that's right. that's that's right i use that in in plato's lemonade stand too you know because harry had this way of of developing building courage because people say if i don't have courage how do i get it well there's harry potter he does certain things right like he he surrounds himself with support so so he never just confronts something totally by himself he's got ron he's got hermione he's got hagrid he's got all these friends right who are kind of who are kind of helping him out and and usually when he goes into danger, he thinks about what's at stake. And it's usually saving the life of one of his friends. And, and so he focuses on that, not on the risk, not on the danger. And there are all these little steps, little things that Harry Potter does throughout the stories that any of us can do to build that. And, and finally, we discover fear is a feeling. Courage is a choice. Yeah. Heroic people will always say, well, I didn't feel like a hero. Courageous people would always, will always say, well, I didn't feel courageous. That's because that's not a feeling. The fear is the feeling. The courage is the choice. And that's a choice you can make when you've done 
some other things in your life right, it really helps you do that, yeah. no matter what the, the risk might be. Yeah. I mean, that is that thing of, of fear being something that you imagine. It's not it's yeah. not a tangible thing. It's, it's a feeling. So That's right. It's our imaginations out of control. You know, the tail wags the dog, as the old saying goes. The imagination makes us fear things. Pascal said that uh, um, people um, people die, you know, a thousand deaths. People fear death uh, all through their lives. And as Socrates said, it may not be the kind of thing you should fear in the first place. Why are you making yourself so miserable? That applies to so much in life. Oh, I've got to stand up in front of a lot of people and give a speech. You make yourself miserable for the month ahead of time, and then it ends up being an enjoyable experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you know that whole that whole thing about um, courage and everything around that. It's it reminded me of uh, the Wizard of Oz. You know, when you go back yeah. to to uh, to that story, it's a, it's a very yeah. similar thing, isn't it, with Dorothy and you know, yeah. it's that whole kind of hero's journey of it is it is. And what I love about like the Wizard of Oz, she's not by herself. No, she starts off by herself, but pretty soon she's got a Ron and a Hermione and a Hagrid <laughs> and a Dumbledore. She's She's got a, a team, and that's a some of the greatest human literature has been about the power of partnership. The Iliad, which it's a it's a book about a war, and it's been called the greatest anti-war book ever written. Uh, but it's also a book about the power of partnership because. Agamemnon and Achilles, Agamemnon the leader and Achilles the great warrior are supposed to be partners in their a war a fight with Troy, but they forget what's important. They forget their partnership. It comes unraveled and bad things happen for the rest of the, for the, rest of the book. Uh, when good things do happen in the book, it's because of other people who did not forget their partnerships. I mean, you get books like The Three Musketeers. It's all about partnerships. Yeah. My biggest surprise in a novel was Dracula. Dracula, the original, uh, uh, is about the power of partnership. Here's this, this evil who has prepared for centuries to be uh, invincible, and yet it's a group of people, not a single person, but a group of people coming together are able to defeat this menace. Uh, so many stories in our literary treasure trove are about the power of partnership. So if we're facing something that is scary, uh, gather a team, gather some partners. It makes everything easier. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Mary Shelley lives down the road, oh, used to live. When she did <laughs> live, she used to live down the road. <laughs> really, is that right? Yeah, she's, uh, she's a, a, I don't know if she's actually a local gal. She married Percy Shelley and obviously uh, around Southbourne, which is uh, probably about five, six, seven miles from here. Yeah, wow, I didn't realize. Uh, we go to um, the You Are the Media that obviously we discussed earlier, having having sort of met in a Zoom room with that sort of connection, uh, used to have their networking meetings at Shelley's house. Really? That is awesome. I mean, the, yeah. the power she had uh, at such a young age, the age of around 18, yeah. right? And she wrote this book, Frankenstein, which ends up being one of the greatest cautionary tales about success ever written. And most people don't understand that. Um, and then she wrote a later book. Well, she wrote several later books, but one later book about a virus that wipes out humanity in the 21st century, kind of <laughs> close to our experience here. It's called The Last Man. And it's not just about a virus. It's not just about an apocalyptic event. It's about the same sorts of egos many of the characters display that Victor Frankenstein displayed, that his monster displayed, that the Captain Walton who tells us the story about Frankenstein displayed grandiose ambition, hubris, uh, people, I want to be great. I want to be remembered. I want to be the name on everyone's lips. And, and look what happens as a result of that. So it's a, it's a great, she's a great um, cautionary you know, the guidance and guardrails, she's wonderful with the guardrails. And, and there, male philosophers tend to give us the guidance. Women philosophers tend to give us the guardrails that we need just as much. But the men just say, set goals, you know, believe in yourself. They don't realize, yeah, and you could end up launching into the world a monster you can't control unless you abide by certain cautionary things. So Mary taught me it's about motives, means, and methods. If you have the wrong motives, the wrong means, the wrong methods, I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how talented you are. You're going you're gonna to create 
problems in in the world. It's a it's it's a study we need now in our time after we've seen so much terrible leadership politically in in the corporate world. We need to to remind people, you know, how to be careful about what we do, especially with the science coming down the road at us right now with AI and with biotech and all that. We need to be careful. Yeah. I mean, that, uh, Jeff Cottrell put something on LinkedIn today that made me, obviously Jeff Cottrell I spoke to last week, um, but he, he uh, I think he, put, I don't know if it was a quote that he got from somewhere else, or it may well have be one of his own quotes, is that leaders don't make followers, leaders make leaders, you know, yeah. and that, that whole yeah. thing of, you know, we need to, the, the leadership that we have has been very much about, you know, building followers and yeah. actually that's that's not what leadership is about. It's that's about- right, absolutely right. You you want people with voices who can challenge you, not just agree with you subserviently, right? I mean, yeah. one of the things that Victor Frankenstein did wrong is that he worked in solo, he worked in solitude, he worked all by himself. He had no no advisors, he had no counselors, he had no independent voices to listen to. Hey, what do you think about this? You know, do you think this is the right way to do this? Do you think I'm going in the right direction here? He he could have saved the world a lot of trouble had he had counselors, partners, like we were just talking about a minutes ago, like Jeff was talking about, if he if he had created other people to help lead in the process he might not have gone wrong it's yeah. a very powerful insight yeah yeah and and so what are the uh, women in philosophy there because actually when you think and i hadn't even really considered it until you you just mentioned mary shelley and jk rowling yeah who are the women philosophers i mean going back as long as you uh, you know as they have yeah. philosophy. you know it, it's funny because it's hard in the ancient world because it was a boy's game for such a long time, right? And and you you got like people like Socrates who did not write anything. Well, he had Xenophon and Plato to write down what he said. Um, you have uh, um, Epictetus who didn't write anything, but he had a guy named Arian follow him around and take dictation and write everything down. So we've got the discourses of Epictetus. We have all these great women philosophers in the ancient world. We kind of hear about Socrates mentions a couple of names. And and um, there's I got a Zoom call yesterday from a, 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 an Asian woman who works at a, a major uh, a tech company. And she wanted to ask me about Hypatia, who was a, an Egyptian woman philosopher um, at the peak of uh, the, the intellectual life of Alexandria, Egypt. And we don't have her works preserved, but we do have some knowledge about her. It's only with Mary Shelley's mother, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, mm-hmm. and in that era, Jane Austen, um, uh, George Eliot, Marianne Evans, um, women begin to philosophize through fiction and really give us profound philosophical ideas, but through telling stories. And then, and then Mary does it so well. And then, and then when we get out of the 19th century into the 20th, more women start going into university to study philosophy. So now the average philosophy department has a lot of women philosophers. I mean, there used to be maybe none or one, but you'll go into philosophy departments, there'll be three or four of the 12 faculty members or five or six will be women philosophers. It's a new phenomenon. There are a lot of cultural explanations for this, but I'm so thrilled to see this kind of unleashed because it's women who philosophize through story who gave us so much, so much insight, like Jane Austen, about our prejudices, how our expectations make us misunderstand the people we're around, misinterpret people's actions, the appearance-reality distinction. Plato talked about it and told a vivid story about a cave. We're all like people chained in a cave, watching shadows dance across the walls, mistaking those as realities, and and Jane Austen brings into stories about romance and and just how. It's like Daniel Kahneman writes his, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist writes the book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, about all the biases and all the prejudices that keep us from forming true beliefs about the world. Well, Jane Austen was talking about that a hundred years before, but telling great stories. So I believe in, in the power of story to really move us and to inspire us and to reveal to us things that are otherwise hidden. Yeah. I mean, your your books were um, described by one person as the alchemist meets Harry Potter, which I thought <laughs> was brilliant. 
<laughs> I love that. Yeah, I love that too. But that's made me think. Actually, you you you're talking about obviously um, going back over here to I'm thinking sort of Shakespeare. You know, sort of the 16th. Yeah, in seventeenth century, yeah. when you know witch hunts were <laughs> were rife in Europe, and mm -hmm. and I think in the states at that point too. Yeah, but right. um, wise women were, you know, there were wise women known within villages, within communities, and actually they were they were, you know, hung for for yeah. what they were what they were doing really. Yeah, yeah. there was yeah. there was a a real prejudice um, uh, that was more than a prejudice. It was just a a hostility against uh, hearing, you know, women's voices and seeing, wait, they may have insights that we all need to hear. And in fact, when I was just getting interested in philosophy, I remember asking people, have you ever had a philosopher in your life? And most people would say, well, my grandmother, that, that would be the opening words. Well, my grandmother. And I thought, wow, see, that's the, the wisdom of women that needs to be celebrated and that needs to be heard uh, in our time more than just if you happen to have the wise grandmother we need to have those voices available to all of us yeah yeah brilliant um well it's been a fantastic conversation i just want to turn it very quickly before we end back to creativity because i'd like to know uh in terms of your own creativity as i say i can see the guitars in the background what do, what do you do for your own well-being? Because I, I do some work with a, an arts therapy charity um, oh, and, yeah. you know, the creative, the arts in particular are very good for people's mental health and well-being. What have you done uh, or what do you do for your own well-being? I've got to have some time in nature. I've got to have what I call my daily walkabout. And, and if I can be exposed to trees and shrubs and flowers and the grasses, if I can pick that kind of setting, it's so much better. And sometimes I'll do a meditation just alone in a room. And sometimes it's the walking meditation. It's the time uh, walking in nature. That's an important thing. The music is important that I don't have guitars in a different room that I have to make a special effort to walk into, to think about going to my instruments, but they're just there. So, so if I get tired on a hard day of thinking about something really difficult and I just pick up a guitar and sometimes it can be five minutes. Sometimes it can be 10 minutes. It doesn't, I'm not going to do a concert, but, but it's like making the brain work in a different way. One of the earliest uh, thoughts I ever uh, came across about this is that, that rest is not always about inactivity. It's about a variation of activity. There can be a restoration, right? Mm -hmm. And so if I want to be creative in any area of my life, I should be taking care of all the other areas of my life. I play with my dogs. I walk the dogs. I play with, we have four, two dogs and four cats. I play with the cats. I, I try to do something and, and I try to be spontaneous. So I never schedule most of my day. On a typical day, most of my day is unscheduled. And that's, that's deliberate on my part because it's during those unscheduled times that I can explore, that I can play, that I can follow my nose over to the bookcase. If the bookcase may, may call to me, the bookcase may call to me, come over here and I may pick off a book that'll just almost glow to me, a book I've never read that I bought 40 years ago and I've never read. And all of a sudden it can be a revelation to me. If all my time was structured, that wouldn't be happening, right? So we've got to give ourselves the gift. Of, somebody said to me, we give ourselves all kinds of gifts. You want a certain kind of watch. You want a certain kind of handbag. You want a certain kind of car. You want to, the only gift we tend never to give ourselves is the most precious gift of all, the precious gift of time. Yeah. You know, time to just be, and then we can think and do more properly, but yeah. the being has to come first. Yeah, I think lots of people uh, beat themselves up about procrastination. Yeah. I'm, I'm a huge believer that when, I, when I'm procrastinating, it's when stuff is mulling over, it's percolating. Yeah, you're preparing. That's exactly right. Procrastination is the unconscious mind getting ready for something really good. Yeah. Yeah. So what have you done differently in lockdown that you might not have done outside of it? Has, has, has much changed for you over the last year? Um, I've read even more novels than I usually. Now, until I was about in my mid fifties, I did not read fiction. I just read professionally what I was supposed to read. And then I, I, I came across in different settings, um, you know, the New York times, uh, places like that, 
there'd be a little interview with a novelist, a contemporary novelist, and they would say, well, what's the greatest novel ever written? And the person would eight times out of 10 say Don Quixote. And I thought something I've never read. Well, a new translation just came out, 900 and some pages. But I thought, I want to see what these people are talking about. So I went and bought the book. And that was my first in my now endless novel reading. During the um, the, the the lockdown, the shutdown, the pandemic, I have done even more of that than usual. It, it, it's made it possible to read the Odyssey over and over yeah. and over. I even read the Aeneid and thought, eh, eh, it's not the Odyssey. It's not for me. But then I heard a podcast that Phi Beta Kappa does called Smarty Pants, a woman who has a new translation, a woman who has a new translation of uh, the Aeneid. And she was talking about how we've completely misunderstood what the Aeneid is all about. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get her translation and read it again. Boom. All of a sudden it makes sense to me. That's what I've given myself the time to do. Yeah. I don't care if it has any monetary value. I don't care if it's part of building a new business that I can serve people through. I just want to learn some of this stuff. And then all of a sudden I'll have new ways to serve people. Yeah. I did read the, the Odyssey years and years ago. But yeah, I, I, I did find it quite a hard read, I have to say. You know, it's, if you get the right translation, which the, uh, there's a new translation uh, uh, just out, a female translator of the Odyssey, very good. Robert Fagel's translation is very good. So Odysseus is a storm-tossed man. He's the unluckiest man alive. He's the man of sorrows, the man of many struggles. You, We think we go through stuff? Look at Odysseus. He goes through the unimaginable stuff. But because he has a sense of purpose, he's trying to get home. <sighs> You've he has, yeah, and that exactly. That's what leads him through. That's what gets him through. And it, it's a book about just like the the Iliad is about the power of partnership. The Odyssey is about the power of purpose. And when we reread that later in our lives, we say, "Oh, I see what I didn't see before." I was just like before. It was like the Cyclops. Who cares about the Cyclops? The Scylla and Charybdis. Who cares about these bizarre things? You know, my granddaughter just read it for the first time uh, about a year ago in school, to, uh, and 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 she said it's like somebody on drugs wrote a story about <laughs> a bunch of people on drugs. <laughs> yeah, that's your first impression of it. Go back to it. Yeah. yeah. Oh. My last question. Uh, is what are you up to? I mean, you said obviously you're writing five books. You're what are you looking forward to coming out of uh, of all this when we can actually get back? Are you looking forward to getting on a stage and and speaking? Have you got any plans? Actually, no. I mean, I, you know, there were years when I was in ninety three cities. There were years when I was on five hundred airplanes. I kind of have done that enough. This may be the new the new stage uh, yeah. for, for, for me to, to, to be home, to kind of walk upstairs and, and have a great experience for an hour or two and then go play with the cats. You know, it's not like I've got to fly to L.A. today and I'll fly back tomorrow spending most of two days on the airplane. No, you know, I've done that plenty. Uh, so I'm writing about five books at the same time now. I, I finished The Frankenstein Factor. Uh, it's in the hands of my literary agent. I've got another book called The Wisdom Collector that's completely finished. Just finished that. I've been working on that for 30 years. Um, I've got a, uh, I'm working on what may be a book about the power of purpose in our lives. Um, I'm working on uh, two or three other things at the same time. I try not to lock myself into, okay, what's the next book going to be? Well, there are three or four going on at the same time here that two of them might join together or one of them might split in two, we'll just see. We'll see how the adventure develops. Wow, I don't, I don't know how you do it. You're a phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> You're amazing. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for spending this time with me, Tom. I mean, it's been a pleasure, a privilege and a pleasure to actually uh, to spend a whole hour just talking and listening to you. So thank you so much. Thank oh, you, thank you Jackie. for being on my podcast. I, I loved it. We could talk all day long. That's clear to me. We could probably talk all week long. It's just a real joy to be with you. Thank we you do. so much. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, then please like or share. If you'd like to receive information on future guests or would like to know more about Power to Speak, then sign up for our newsletter at www.powertospeak.co.uk. I look forward to seeing you next time.